Let me read the psalm to you. I wasn't initially going to not do this because uh, I kind of skip around in the sermon a little bit. So let me read it so you have the whole context first, and then we'll look at it in detail. A psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. We're going to be looking a little bit at Psalm 139 this morning and Psalm 7 as well as I explained one of the points in the sermon. So if you want to actually have that ready, it might be a good idea. So we're looking at Psalm 27, but we're also going to be looking at Psalm 139 and Psalm 7 briefly. I've entitled the sermon, David's Song of Struggling Well with His Confidence in God. And so you... Um, might think that that's kind of a contradiction. And I got that idea from a mission statement on the Sunday bulletin of a church that we used to attend, which read, stimulated by the word, serving out of the love of God, struggling well with life. That phrase suggests correctly that God's word stimulates our thinking to properly consider who he is. And the word of God dictates to us how we should approach him in our worship. His word motivates us to love and serve God and each other with all of our being. And we do all of those things while we struggle well with the often difficult circumstances that God providentially brings into our lives. We're going to look at that closely this morning with David's life. And so I'm guessing that the idea of struggling well with life is difficult for many Christians because the phrase struggling well seems contradictory and it suggests that struggling in life as a Christian is normative 
It's something that we do all the time. And there's a method or an art to doing it well. And the idea of struggling well with life almost adds an unwanted habitualness to the idea of struggling. And while people might agree that God will at times find unusual ways to sanctify us and to chasten us and fine-tune our priorities for us, there are Christian organizations, mainly on television, that adhere to an aberrant theology today called Word of Faith. Word of Faith theology teaches that if you're struggling as a Christian, there's something wrong with your relationship with God. Because God never intended for believers to struggle in their Christian walk, according to that teaching. And so their rationale for this errant theology goes something like this. If you're a Christian, supposedly you've been called to experience a life of spiritual, physical, mental, emotional, financial, financial and relational blessing. So according to this wayward theology, to be in debt, or to be sick, or to be left by one's spouse, or lose your job, or lose your house, or to be struggling with finances, or to have any number of various spiritual struggles, shows not only a lack of faith on your part, but demonstrates that you are literally on the brink of spiritual defeat. This theology teaches that God's design for you is to bless you in every area of your life. And if you aren't being blessed, the solution is really quite simple, according to this theology. You simply verbally claim God's promises by speaking back to God His Word, where He will resolve any situation or conflict because the God of the Bible is a God of blessing and prosperity. So you don't have to really read the Psalms for too long or too carefully to see that in Psalm after Psalm, King David's single most consistent prayer to God is relief from the perpetual abuse he was receiving from his enemies. Relationally, David is always talking about, he's always praying about. He's always anxious about the extent that the wicked are pursuing him. David had lots of enemies. In fact, we're going to see shortly that David has so many relational problems with the wicked in the Psalms that he starts to question that their continued wicked pursuit of him might just be God's just judgment against David for his own iniquity. And ironically, David actually does write as if he is on the brink of spiritual defeat with his enemies in many of the Psalms. And yet his concerns about these enemies are always couched in the middle of this incredible confidence in God's never-failing care for him. And David begins Psalm 27 with three of the outstanding reasons he has complete confidence in God. And in 1 to 3, verses 1 to 3, he gives the three assurances in God's character. 
He says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an enemy encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. And here in the opening verses of Psalm 27, we have a perfect example of David's ongoing struggle against his enemies, couched in the midst of his unfailing assurance and confidence in the character of God. So to begin, he names three adjectives about God that give David this assurance and confidence in life. He says God is David's light, deliverance, and strength. And let me get you to think about a few things for each of those adjectives. He said God is my light, and I sense that he means that being in God's presence, as we saw in the song this morning, is the light that reveals the difference between good and evil. That God's light brings blessing and salvation from the evils that are pursuing David. God's light guides a person out of spiritual darkness that is the source of the evil behavior behind those who are pursuing him. God's light has shown us what truth and morality and goodness and justice are. God's light shows us what the end of wickedness and sin are and why we need to be saved from them. His light shows us that living in the world apart from him is living in spiritual darkness. It's living foolishly and sinfully, wickedly, and tragically marching every day closer and closer to death. Walking in God's light is walking in truthfulness. It's walking in wisdom. It's walking in reality. God's presence as light in the world will conquer finally and eliminate the darkness. And then David says that God is his deliverance. He even says right at the beginning, when evil men attack me, they stumble and fall, as if it's God's fault or God's reasoning or God's ability that made them fall. He says he is my help, my safety net, my preservation from my enemies and their wickedness. He delivers me in battle, he says often. He saves me from my enemies, from external evils, from wild animals, natural catastrophes like plagues and famine and sickness. He delivers me from my own moral failure, David says repeatedly. He forgives my sin and my tendency to wander off and neglect him. And finally, he says that God is the strength of my life. He's my constant, unfailing refuge and place of safety. His strength enables me to live by faith and continue to seek him in spite of my trials and struggles. He is my protection, my stronghold, my fortress, he says. And even in the midst of sorrow, my joy in him is the strength that sustains me. God is the source of David's blessing, the source of his joy, the perfection of his happiness. He is his deliverer, savior, and light. 
Well, these adjectives are an amazing testimony of the basis for David's complete reliance, trust, and confidence in God to be David's helper. David almost seems to be boasting in a sense here when he says, Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? In David's boasting of God, he accounts all the troubles he faces from his enemies as sort of light as a feather in compared to God's power to deal with them. And I wonder if we dare to boast of the certainty of our safety. What do we think about that idea? David seems to have an absolutely clear understanding of who God is in relationship to him. And therefore he has no reason to fear anything in his life. There's no fear in his heart in any circumstance. And he remains confident in God's continued protection and deliverance for his entire life. But it's even as he recalls the numerous times when his enemies and the wicked have come against him so vehemently, with so much hatred, it looks as though they want to devour his soul, he says. David describes the hatred of the wicked as being acutely directed right at David. They were like lions ready to leap on their prey and tear him limb from limb, he says in Psalm 7. They were ferocious and unyielding in their attacks against David. He says there were, in fact, so many that it was as if they were encamped against him, ready to go to war. They are so violent, he says, that they give the impression that they are breathing out violence with every breath. These enemies were false witnesses. They were promise breakers. They say and do things which are false in the sense that they are completely groundless in truth. Their attacks against him are without basis in fact or in reality. Their wickedness seems so hostile that David at times could almost imagine that God had completely abandoned him. Thus David says in Psalm 38, 19, Many are they that hate me without cause. David had lots of enemies. And later in verses 5 and 6, David again states this repeated theme in the Psalms of acknowledging his confidence in God's protection in the midst of his struggling with his enemies. He's confident in God, but he's struggling with his enemies. Yet his confidence that God will deliver him out of that trouble always leads him to shouts of joy and singing praise to God. He says, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. And so he says, in the day of trouble, with his enemies all around him, God hides him in his shelter and conceals him under the cover of his tent. 
In verse 13 he says, If it wasn't for his faith that he would surely live to see the goodness of God while he was still alive, David would have lost heart in the midst of the raging hatred of his enemies that God was indeed his light, strength, and deliverer. In verses 4 to 6, we see David's confidence is built on his commitment to commune with God. He says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after. It would be hard to try to find something in the Old Testament that was not worthy of asking God for when you needed something. Understanding was sought after, wisdom, life, a king, a child for women who were barren. You sought God for rain, for justice to be done, for guidance, rescue from the attacks of your enemies, resolution to any number of struggles and needs and life issues you were facing. There's nothing you couldn't come to God and ask Him about. And so prayer in the Psalms seems to be mostly about us recognizing our needs, and then requesting that God supply them. David here almost seems to ask permission of God to seek or desire to secure one central thing. One thing that's more important to David than any other thing. One thing that he would wish to never be distracted from. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You know, reading through the Psalms and Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, I suppose we could look at David's life and say, well, no wonder David has such amazing confidence in God. Look at all the critical situations David found himself struggling in that gave him so many opportunities to see God in action and to come to his rescue. No wonder David's confidence, you might say, was always running at peak performance. But the Bible doesn't try to convince us that it's the number of times or the number of experiences of being rescued that leads to David's confidence in God or the depth or seriousness of the, or the frequency of David's struggles and trials that resulted in his tremendous confidence in God. It's not those things. It's David's deep confidence in God came about because of his deep commitment to having an ongoing, lifelong, intimate communion with God. That's what he desired more than any other thing, that no distraction would take him away from that. He wanted to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, he said. And I take that to mean to to live so close to God all the days of his life that the Lord's delightfulness, his pleasantness, his beauty would always be before David. God's glory would always be David's motivation for everything that he does. That God's beauty and charm, his loveliness, his grace, his kindness and his favor would always be the source of David's security and confidence. Even when at times, 
the extent of his struggles with his enemies were shrouded in incomprehensibility and mystery for David. He couldn't understand why he had so many enemies. And he sought to inquire in his temple. The word for inquire meant to split or divide or separate, and hence to discern in his temple. It's a biblical word that's used often in worship contexts. And what he's saying is, I want to gaze upon your beauty, Lord, and to seek you, to pray to you. And the message version says, to study at your feet. But I think David is saying that the reason I want to study at your feet isn't just so I can meditate on how awesome you are. It's so I can do my own self-searching and integrity checking in light of who you are. I want to see who I am really inside when I'm in your presence. John Owen, a Puritan scholar, stated this self-searching like this. Beholding the glory of Christ is where I desire to live. Herein would I die. Herein would I dwell in my thoughts and my affections. To the withering and consumption of all the painted beauties of this world, unto the crucifying all things here below, until they become unto me a dead and deformed thing, no way fit for affectionate embraces. And isn't that the freedom from distraction that's a part of our struggle and challenge as well? To find a way to put aside the distractions and the tendency to embrace and long for painted beauties all around us instead of the incomparable, eternal beauty and reality of God as the most worthy goal to pursue in our lives. To have all of our thoughts and affections focused on His beauty, His grace, His favor, and to live securely and patiently in that place every day. The secret of David's confidence is his delight in communion with God. Because in his communion, he not only experiences the harmony of God's perfections, but he takes the risk of seeing where he needs to redirect his desires. Where he needs to challenge the degree of his own integrity and motives and evaluate his thought life in light of who God is. So there's a caveat here. A qualification, maybe even a warning. You see, when you were in God's presence and you properly stated your prayer before God, the Lord God Almighty, that is, it reached a source of highly effective power. If you were a believer in God and a covenant member of Israel, you had complete confidence that your prayer would be heard and answered by God. And so prayer in the Psalms teaches us to pray expectantly, looking for God to answer and hear those prayers. But they never were prayers that were calculating in order to get what we think we should deserve to get. Because God alone knows what is best for our good. And God is going to do His will in our lives, regardless of what we ask for at times. So let me show you an example of what I mean when I say that David's communion with God 
isn't just to reflect on God's awesomeness, but it's an opportunity to reflect on whether or not the struggles he's experiencing are there because of a just and deserving just judgment that God has ordained for him. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Psalm 139, we'll take a look at that first. This is a psalm you're probably familiar with. It's, it's the psalm where David is just amazed at how well the Lord knows every detail of his life. There's nothing that, that God doesn't know about him in any degree, in any regard. Psalm 139, we're just going to look at a few verses. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path. That word comprehend in the Hebrew is the word winnow. You, uh, you divide, you sort out, you filter, you narrow down, you remove the chaff on my path. And my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. And then the part of the psalm that we're all very familiar with in verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I descend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. Verse 13. For you have formed my inward parts. You have covered me, you have knit me, you have woven me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance. In Hebrew, your eyes saw my embryo. My innermost substance you saw. And in your book they are all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Wow, he's just amazed at how intimately God knows everything about David. And this only happens because he's in deep communion with God all the time. He's always seeking God out. He's always looking to find more about God and how incomprehensible and mysterious it is that God is relating to him when he's, when he's just a regular guy. He says, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God, how great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. That's so awesome, isn't it? But then think about something. Immediately he goes into a total other idea in the psalm. And he says in verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. And you kind of go, wait a second. Why are you talking about that after you've, talking, after you've been talking about how intimately God knows you? He says, depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you, God, wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? 
Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. Lord, I hate them like you do. Yes, the Psalms do teach that the Lord hates the wicked. I count them my enemies. So David's thinking, okay, Lord, I'm a little confused. You, you know me intimately. You know everything about me. You know that I hate those who hate you. You know it intimately. So, Lord, why do I have so many enemies? Why are there so many struggles with enemies in my life? Why do they so violently oppose me when I hate them just the way that you do? I don't get it. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. Know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Flip over to Psalm 7 for a second. We're going to finish that idea beautifully, as David does. Psalm 7, O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me. Hmm. Kind of familiar, right? Lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. So he's thinking, okay, Lord, something's not right here, I'm thinking. O Lord, my God, if I have done this thing, what thing? Well, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who is at peace with me, or have plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust. Salah. Pause musically, lift that idea up to the Lord. Lord, why do I have so much trouble in my life? Why is there so much trouble in my life when you know I hate my enemies like you do? Then look what he says in verse 6. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. And awake for me to the judgment you have commanded. Wow. That's wanting to get some resolution in your personal life, isn't it? That's kind of like asking God, okay, I'm not sure what's going on, but maybe I have it coming. Maybe you're just in allowing these things to happen to me. So Lord, search my heart. Is there anything that's making this happen in my own life? See, that's, that's intimate communion with God, isn't it? Looking at ourselves closely. Your self-searching in your communion with God just might result in you asking, Lord, why am I in the midst of this situation? What are you trying to teach me about myself in this? Don't let me experience this without knowing what it is you want me to learn from it. It seems like my enemies are just coming after me and there's no solution. Maybe I'm to blame. So when you come into God's presence, searching your own heart in light of who God is, searching your own anxious thoughts about the trouble you're in or any struggle you're experiencing, I would suggest that you come cautiously. And you better be prepared to learn and grow. 
David is wondering in Psalm 139 and Psalm 7 if there is the reason the wicked is pursuing him so violently and he has so many enemies. If that reason just might be the result of God's just judgment against David's own wickedness. Do we ever do that? This is why, folks, the word of faith theology is a complete travesty and aberration. Because sometimes the struggles you have in your life come as God's just and needed chastisement for you. They come as God's warning to examine your own heart. They come as an opportunity to purify your life in some necessary way that you haven't yet seen without the trial and struggle. They come as a warning to be submissive to the often incomprehensible and mysterious God who's working in your life just exactly as he sees fit in every trial and in every blessing. And any theology that teaches that God doesn't want you to ever have any struggles in your life is not a biblical theology. But remember, even with the risk that God's judgment might be at the heart of your struggles... David remains confident and assured of God's protection, which results in his sacrifices of shouts of joy and his singing praises to God. Pretty thought-provoking psalm, don't you think? Then in verses 7 to 10, we see that the cry of David's heart is to continue to seek God's face in the midst of these struggles that he's having. He says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast not me off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. I want you to notice something else here as well. David's confidence in God's protection and delivery, which results in this joyful sacrifice of praise and song you just mentioned, doesn't mean that there isn't a continuing pressing need for you to pray for God's deliverance from your struggles. And just because God has delivered you from your enemies in the past, doesn't mean you don't need to prayerfully check the integrity of your heart in his presence anymore. David is still crying out. He's still asking God to hear his prayers and his requests. He's still seeking God's face. He's still hoping God doesn't hide his face from him. That he doesn't turn him away in his anger and his judgment that he doesn't leave him or forsake him or reject him in the midst of the trial and trouble. Even though (laughs) he's always confident that God always rescues him. Just because in the past he has delivered you, and you're completely confident that he will always rescue you, 
You're never actually done calling out to God for deliverance. And you're never done checking your own heart for wickedness. The confidence David has in God's deliverance never creates in David's heart any kind of attitude that says, well, I don't need to still call on him, do I? He always rescues me. He never says, I don't still need to look closely at my own heart and wonder if my circumstances might be God's judgment and chastisement towards my own wickedness, do I? God always rescues me. David is always calling on the Lord, earnestly, audibly, fervently, even though God has always been his help. Even though he always saves him. Even though he never forsakes him. Because that's what searching yourself out in the presence of God and his perfection requires of you. To look at yourself in light of who he is. That's what constitutes being in an intimate relationship with him. And then in verses 11 to 14, we see David's faith is in the goodness of God. He says, teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. David's just saying, Lord, teach me who you want me to be. Teach me how you want me to live. Teach me the moral principles which you expect the one who loves communion with you to follow. Teach me your law and your precepts so that I might keep the integrity of my heart pure before you. Psalm 25, 4-5 says, Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I will wait all the day. David is just saying at the end here, be my light that leads me on the moral path that will guarantee that I'm blameless before my accusers. Because my wicked enemies are always watching and planning violence against me. They long for my failure. They want to see me fall. They breathe out cruelty and they hate you, Lord. They want to have you look bad. And I don't know when they're coming, but you do. So keep my heart pure and keep my integrity sound. So teach me patience, Lord, in the process. And give me courage in the waiting. Because my enemies are many. And in the answers you give me, let me see your just judgment and be satisfied with it. Father, your word is seriously convicting at times. I pray that you have done that this morning in your spirit, that you have caused us to reflect deeply on what you have recorded for us that men have said to you. May your word continue to bless us as we 
sing now and bring songs to you as we lift up your name in prayer and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.